This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here with my fellow senior writer, Ryan Kennedy, Stephen Ellis lurking around us. And we, I mean, we have to start this podcast talking about the cursed Toronto Maple Leafs. Here we are, a fifth straight opening round loss. No series wins. It'll be now at least 18 years if they if they can advance past the first round next year. So let's just start broad and big, Ryan. What do you do with this team? A team that easily won its division, was in contention for the President's Trophy, had the Rocket Richard winner, had a really strong defensive record, offensive record, you name it. It was a dominant team. It was a heavy favorite. And the Leafs still found a way to blow the series. So what do you do to fix this team moving forward, if anything? Or do you chalk it up to a year where everything just went wrong and you try to roll with a similar group next year? Yeah, it is kind of ironic that the least playoff streak is now old enough to drink in Quebec. Um, but I, I think that you have to you have to stand back a little bit and say that, you know, if John Tavares had been healthy, obviously it's a different series. If, if Jake Muzzin didn't get hurt in game six, it's probably a different game seven. Having said that, you, you can't have excuses every year because every team goes through injuries. I think there was a couple of things exposed in this series. One is that Zach Hyman cannot be on a scoring line anymore. I, the amount of chances that Marner and Matthews gave him, the amount of breakaways, the amount of open looks they gave him, it's just too much. You can't have one goal when you're getting all the plum opportunities. Now, he is a free agent. If you want to bring him back, you can't give him more than $2.5 million. You can't on essentially, you know, another Elia Mikheyev, which you already have. Um, so if he's coming back, it's got to be at a big discount and he has to be a second or a third line player. Maybe you put Nylander up there again, or you re-sign Nick Felino, and that's your top line with Felino on the wing doing the dirty work, but with some skill as well. I think another thing you have to do is you have to look at the assistant, the assistant coaches. Um, the power play was horrible this year, and that's on Manny Malhotra. Um, the defense, I thought, you know, during the season, the Leafs were a lot better defensively than they have been in past years. And in the playoffs, I thought the veterans, for the most part, played very well. I thought Bogosian was terrific, but obviously the young guys struggled a bit. Justin Hall struggled a lot. Uh, there was a little too much indecisiveness, not enough details, and that's on Dave Haxtell. So is that experiment over? Um, I think, you know, the sort of silver lining here is the Leafs have a lot of expiring contracts. So, you know, I, I think you bring back Jason Spezza, but you probably can't bring back Joe Thornton. I'm not sure whether or not you bring back Wayne Simmons. Um, you know, he gave them an element they need. If you, if you do re-sign Nick Foligno, then you're probably covered off there. And again, you have Bogosian, who's also tough and can fight if you need him to. So you probably go in that direction. In terms of needs, um, I, I think, you know, Jack Campbell is the goaltender. I, I think he did everything he could in that series. This was the only series of the ones they've lost recently where they didn't outright lose the goaltending battle. Carey Price was fantastic, yes, but Jack Campbell is fantastic as well. What I think you need is a strong veteran backup 
who can take a lot of starts in the regular season and be there if you need him in the playoffs. Um, Yaroslav Halak, if you can get him. Auntie Ranta, if you can get him. You, you can't spend too much money, um, but I think you need somebody, you know, better than David Riddich. And obviously, you know, Frederick Anderson, you let him go to market. So that's a lot of things, but, you know, I, I don't think you break up the core. Um, I think Marner got spooked by the Tavares injury. He was terrible all series. Uh, so much indecisiveness. I think it was in his head. It's understandable. When you see a beloved teammate go down like that, you're not going to be the same. And, you know, whether it's the puck over the glass penalty or just all the bad decisions he made with the puck, which usually you don't see from Mitch Marner, I, I think there was something going on there, um, you know, just in terms of his mental makeup. And, and that, I mean, that's my pet theory, but I, I think he was spooked. And that's why we saw such a poor performance for him, despite all the ice time he was given. Mm -hmm. And I think with Marner, you know, I think it might even go beyond the, just this year with Tavares. I think it's just sort of this tendency to think he has to carry the team on his back and try to do everything at once because he's now 18 games without a goal. Um, some good thoughts there, Ryan. I, I think, you know, I do agree that you have to get the excuses out of the way first. You know, you did, you know, John Tavares is your captain. He's your second line center. You got him for half a period. So it obviously did have a significant impact on the series, not just because it spooked the Leafs and kind of cost them that first game, but also it really made things easy defensively for the Montreal Canadiens. They could really just put the Philip Deneau line on Austin Matthews, not worry too much about a secondary threat. Nylander played great, but other than that, it's like you're not going to be too scared of William of uh, Alexander Kerfoot and, and you know, Nick Foligno and Ilya Mickey of Jason Spezza. I think what really happened was it felt like the Leafs were a deep offensive team but with Tavares out, it sort of exposed them as a lot of the depth behind behind the top line. It was older and slower. And, you know, if you look at what the Leafs gave away last year with Andres Janssen, Kasperi Kapanen and gone, it, the team got much slower. And I, I felt like watching them try to stage these comebacks and penetrate, especially in that last game, the legs were just not there. I really do wonder if Austin Matthews is hurt. I don't think, you know, there's a lot of talk of how much Marner struggled, which he absolutely did. I think with the Tavares injury, he felt like, they had to do all the scoring, but Austin Matthews, it, it was strange. I don't think his shot looked as electric. I don't think he had the ability to separate from people that we saw during the regular season. So it, I would be absolutely shocked if we find out that there's no physical malady for Matthews. I think it, maybe it was his lower back. He was obviously really good in game two. He wasn't the same after that. I don't know if the whole ragdoll routine, which is probably going to be a meme now did something to his lower back. I don't know if it's the wrist again, but to me, he did not look like the same player. And I, I would be truly stunned if it turns out he was healthy. It's almost worse. If you find out Matthews is healthy for that series and that was the best he could do, that's extremely right. concerning. Extremely concerning. With Jack Campbell, it's strange. You know, I think there's a bit of narcissism there. And remember, the definition of narcissism is not self-love. It's self-obsession. And I kind of want to say, Jack, it's not about you, man. It's not always about you. You played great. Don't try and pin this on yourself. It really, really wasn't anything to do with you. Campbell was mostly as good as Price for the series. He had a 934 save percentage. I had a tweet earlier today. Uh, it's the best save percentage in a, in a playoff in which a Leaf goalie played at least seven games since Johnny Bauer in 1964. So, Jack, my friend, it's not about you, man. You played really well. If you're looking big picture, what did the Leafs have to do? I agree with the power play. The strange thing about Manny Malhotra coaching your power play is, like, has Manny Malhotra, did he play on a power play since Major Junior? 
it, I, I've been sort of joking with people saying it's like the equivalent of bringing in Pavel Bure to coach your penalty kill. Like Manny Maholster was a shutdown defensive forward. What are you doing coaching the power play? Bring in someone who was actually a power play expert, trying, you know, contract Adam Oates or something to sort of configure your power play. It doesn't make sense to me. It right. never did. Um, and I, I do think the Leafs have to, I think they have to consider breaking up this core. Yes, you could you could argue that maybe you need a mulligan because so many unlucky things happened to start the series with the Tavares injury. That could be one route to go. But if you look at the overall picture of the Leafs, you know, you're going to have to try and re-sign Hyman, who's going to tr- he's probably going to demand a contract, an AAV in five million plus. He's going to go for his for maybe even six Brendan Gallagher type money. Yeah. And you have to think about a Morgan Riley extension. He's going to the last year of his contract. So who's someone that struggled the most that isn't necessarily Absolutely indispensable. Obviously, Matthews is going nowhere, but I do think you have to consider a Mitch Marner trade. It's sad to say, but if you've lost five years in a row in the first round, there's really nothing to lose. And you have to think about what are the pieces you could get from Marner. You could get multiple pieces. You could also free up a lot of cap space. So people could say, you know, Seth Jones, whatever you want. Sure, you could you could talk about a possible Seth Jones trade, even though I, th- I think Seth Jones has become a little bit overrated. But mm. it's going to free up a lot of money because Marner is making so much. And you might be able to pursue an extra piece, whether it's, you know, trying to sign Michael Granlin. I think someone like Blake Coleman really helped the Leafs. He can kill penalties. He can play a heavy game. He's not that old. So he still has a lot of spring in his step. He's won a Stanley Cup. He's been in the deep waters. So I, I think it, it adds to your flexibility if you move one of your really big contracts. And it's sad, you know, if you're a Leafs fan, you don't want to have this conversation, but it's no longer a reactionary thing. It's been five years in a row. You have to change something at this point. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if Kyle Dubas is still the, the one making these decisions. It's too early to know. Uh, but looking forward now in the North, Ryan, you have the Habs advancing to round two, the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, first of all, before we actually make a serious pick, give me your key storyline you're going to be watching in this series. Well, you know what? I, I think it's going to be Winnipeg's forwards versus Montreal's defense. And when I say defense, I mean team defense. You know, what the Canadians did really well in the Toronto series was keep the Leafs off the board. And, you know, it's, it's easier to destroy than it is to create. Um, Cole Caulfield, Nick Suzuki, and, you know, Kakinami had a couple. Josh Anderson looked good early. Um, but Montreal's going to have to basically replicate their strategy against Toronto and hope that they get the same result. And, hey, I mean, it, it could certainly work again, but then you go to Winnipeg and you say, okay, well, we need Connor to be at his best. We need Shifley to be at his best. We need all those guns up front to really push the Habs defense. And what's going to be interesting is now you're into the second round. You've got some, some old war horses back there for Montreal. Can they, can they handle that Winnipeg pressure? I mean, they do have some, some heavy forwards. Uh, they can get in on the four check and they do have some nice speed. So I think that's going to be a fascinating matchup because, you know, if, if you look at goaltending, obviously Carey Price is super hot right now. Connor Hale-Buck is one of the best goaltenders in the NHL right now. Um, so you're pretty even there. And in terms of the defense cores themselves, you know, Winnipeg, uh, I thought like Montreal kind of overachieved in the first round. And a lot of credit goes to Josh Morrissey for really kind of seizing the reins there for the Jets. Um, so for me, that's the very interesting matchup is Winnipeg's forwards versus Montreal's team defense. Excellent. Uh, 
I think to me, this is going to be a goalie series. And I kind of joked about it on Twitter that you could see every game one nothing because obviously Connor Hellebuck is the hero of the Winnipeg Jets. Carey Price, the hero of the Habs, and just looked absolutely unbeatable. Especially, you know, the weird thing about the Leafs series is the Leafs never blew a lead, if I'm not mistaken. They just never led again after game five. And Carey Price with a lead, it just feels like the net is like this big, tiny, tiny, you just can't score on him, right? And I think he does, I think he did eventually get into the Leafs' head. And it's interesting because to me, that's scary for the Jets. The Jets' greatest feature they have is their goaltending because, uh, and I'll get into it a little bit more later, but the underlying numbers, the Jets are not a very good defensive hockey team. They've really been relying on Hellbook to bail them out. So if Carey Price stays at this level, it's going to really neutralize the big advantage that the Jets have had over their opponents all season. And then I think we have a series. People might say, well, you know, the Leafs have series was kind of ugly hockey and Winnipeg, you know, they made short work of Edmonton. So does that mean the Jets are going to make short work of the Habs? I really don't think so. Uh, I think the Jets were relying again on their goaltending to get past Edmonton, which badly outchanced them in that series. So who do you like to win the series right now, Ryan? Well, I'm going to take Winnipeg, but I'm going to say that's in seven. I think the Habs have figured out a pretty good strategy for survival here, and I, I think they're going to make a pretty good game of it. All right. I, I'm going to actually pick the Habs to win this series. I sort of changed my mind based on how the Leafs series unfolded. If you sort of break it down, the Leafs were a better offensive team than the Jets in the regular season. Montreal shut down the Leafs. The Leafs were a much better defensive team than the Jets. The Jets, they bleed high danger chances. They have a big problem with it. The Habs, I think they're a deep team. They're a pretty fast team, especially with the impact that Cole Caulfield made at times in the series. Nick Suzuki, there's some chemistry there. And when the Habs use those speedy young forwards in their counterattacks, I don't know if the Jets are up to the task of slowing them down and stopping them, at least not based on what we saw in the regular season. And again, the Jets territorially were dominated by the Oilers in that series. They won, but they, I think they won mainly on the strength of their goaltending. So to me, if you sort of break it down, the fact that the Habs can neutralize the one major advantage the Jets have had in their, on their opponents so far, I kind of like what Montreal brings to the table, and I'm going to pick the Habs to win the series in six games. Mm, nice. Hey, everybody. Surprise. If you've noticed, if you're watching or listening, Ken Campbell has now joined us, had a little bit of technical issues, just like the Leafs. He just wasn't ready to start on time. You see what I did there? He's the Mitch Marner of this podcast. But uh, now that he's got the technical issues sorted out, he's here and he's going to join us for our next topic, which is the Columbus Blue Jackets. We know Seth Jones, the camp, Agent Pat Brisson, they have notified the Blue Jackets that Seth Jones, after his contract expires next year, does not intend to resign. And the report came out a few days later that Jones is probably going to get traded by the NHL draft this July. So, I've already written at length about possible Jones uh, destinations. You can find it on the website, but I want to sort of talk more about the Blue Jackets side of this. What do you do if you're Yarmo Kekalein and John Davidson? This is a market that keeps losing bodies. And lastly, you know, I wrote some of the names down since 2019. Panarin, Bobrovsky, Duchesne, Felino, Savard, Dubois. And it just seems like this is a franchise that has trouble keeping players. It's a small market. It's not a free agent destination. So what do you do if you're the Columbus Blue Jackets? Are you forced now to rebuild? Do you try to retool with a clever trade? We'll start with you, Kenny. What do you do if you're Yarmo Kekalainen? Well, I think what you do if you're Yarmo Kekalainen is you do what Kevin Dayoff has done in Winnipeg. Um, and that is, for some reason, you know, I mean, Winnipeg is, is probably even less of a free agent destination than, than, uh, than Columbus by like a long shot. Um, so they're never, they're never going to sign like the big 
UFAs. Like they, they may get a rental at the deadline or, you know, somebody who wants to go there to try and win a cup or something, but they're never going to get those guys. And it looks like Columbus is never going to get those guys. So what you have to do is you have to create a, an atmosphere where it's, it's really tight. Like it's a really, really tight, tight atmosphere. Um, you know, like sort of like, I think the jets have done a really good job of like creating like a family sort of situation there. You know what I mean? Like they, they make it like it's family. And so then, you know, guys like Shifley and Ehlers and all those guys do end up signing long-term before they even come close to hitting the free agent market. Right. Um, you know, I mean, there's obviously some dynamic there that's not working. Um, I think part of it is gone now with John Tortorella. Um, you know, I, I think that's going to take care of some of it. Um, but I mean, what it means the Columbus Blue Jackets are going to have to do is they're just going to have to outdraft and outdevelop and, and other teams and find these, you know, these Brian Rust type of guys that, you know, in the late rounds or as free agents, and they're going to have to build with young guys and that's how they're going to have to do it. And, um, it doesn't mean it can't be done. Um, you know, I mean, what big free agents are signing with the Montreal Canadiens these days, you know? I mean, what big free agents are signing with whomever? I mean, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that way. And, and I mean, you, you know, you look at it and, I mean, I, I would argue in the case of two of those players that you mentioned in particular, Sergei Bobrovsky and Matt Duchesne, they're better off. <laughs> they're better off that they, those guys didn't sign there. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, imagine Columbus with that contract that Sergei Bobrovsky signed in Florida. You know, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that they're they're happy that that didn't happen. I think, too, part of it is, you know, John John Davidson coming back. Um, he's a guy who, you know, is is uh, a, a really revered guy there. He creates a culture. He's you know, he's he's kind of that kind of guy. But and the last thing I'll say is I think they have to, and they probably don't want to hear this, but I think they have to be a little more accommodating or less stringent in their, in the way they treat players, because sometimes players are special, you know, Seth Jones is a special player and he probably has to be treated different than somebody else. You know what I mean? And I think they, they, they have, there's a bit of an attitude in Columbus that this is the way we do things. This is how we sign players. This is what we're going to give you. This is, you know, and here's our line in the sand and you're not crossing it and we're not crossing it. So live with it or go. And a lot of the players have said, okay, fine, I'll go. They went to war with Ryan Johansson. They went to war with him, a contract, absolute Armageddon with him when he was, when his entry level contract was up and he became a uh, restricted free agent. And, you know, I mean, it ultimately did lead to them getting Seth Jones because they traded him, but that's what happens there. So I think you've got to kind of sort of rethink where you're at and how you're dealing with these guys. Um, but I, I think it can be done. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, if, if you're a little less confrontational with the, the contract negotiations, that can go a long way in just building up. Uh, some good faith with your own players. And I think the Blue Jackets have a very good opportunity to build an incredible core in the next couple of years because next year's draft is highlighted by Shane Wright. You got Brad Lambert, Matt Savoy, a couple of other guys that are pretty high end if you don't pick top three. And then after that, you've got Connor Bedard, Mate Vimit Mitchkoff, and Adam Fantilli. So if you bottom out, 
next season, season after that, and get a little bit of lottery luck, not even a little bit of lottery luck for that matter, you're going to get two incredible players on top of whoever you get in this year's draft as well. So I think Columbus can, if they, you know, if they sort of strip it down to the wood and, you know, the, and say to the fan base, look, we, we need to rebuild almost from scratch. You know, I, I think the fans there are sophisticated enough that they understand what needs to be done at this point. Then you go through that, that tough cycle you bottom out, you get a couple of elite young players, you build around them. And as Ken said, it's going to be long-term contracts. You know, after those entry-level deals, you're probably going to get outside of your comfort zone if you're the Blue Jackets. But, you know, say, for example, they do get Shane Wright. You sign him to an eight-year contract as soon as his entry-level deal is done. You, you do the Connor McDavid where you make sure – He's not going anywhere during his prime. You do the same thing with whether it's Bedard or, you know, Mitch Koff, you're going to have to wait a couple more years because of his KHL contract. But, you know, whoever that player is, you lock them down for that eight years um, and you build around those guys. Because at that point, you can go to some free agents, uh, particularly veteran ones, and say, hey, you want to play in the wing of Shane Wright uh, or Connor Bedard? Come on down. We can get you 30 goals. Uh, and maybe a long playoff run. But I think, I think that's kind of their only course of action right now. And, it, you know, it is going to take a bit of time. they got to build that pipeline back up because right now they do not have the elite elements necessary to put any semblance of a, of a future together. But they do have the opportunity to do so if they begin quickly. Yeah, and you make a good point about the next couple of drafts being three deep at the top, which is really important rather than two deep because the draft lottery rules have changed. Where now, if you have the worst record in the league, the furthest you can drop going forward is going to be third, not fourth. So you can get one of those big three in the 2022 or 2023 draft classes. It's a big deal. And it also means it's something you could sell Patrick Line on. If you could have someone to distribute him the biscuit, then all of a sudden Patrick Liney might be winning Rocket Richard trophies. So it's it, the, the Blue Jackets, they don't have nothing, but I agree that they, you know, they're still a ways away from having a proper core. They still have some prospects, you know, Chinikov and Marchenko, and you still have Zach Wierenski to build around. You still have Patrick Liney, who should be unlocked with a better fit as a coach. I think Bruce Boudreaux would be a tremendous fit, in my opinion, for Patrick Liney in particular. Look at what Alex Ovechkin did, his his giant, his best seasons of his career with, were with uh, Bruce Boudreaux. You have Liam Foodie as well, Jack Ross who showed potential this year at times you still have cam atkinson there as a veteran leader so you're not completely barren but i do think the blue jackets have to look for a trade that's kind of not necessarily two steps back so two steps back would be trading seth jones purely for draft picks or purely for prospects who haven't set foot in the nhl but maybe it's one step back to, to eventually take two steps forward so it's a deal that get, makes you younger and does net you say a first round pick but also nets you an intriguing prospect who has some nhl experience so i know there's been talk of the chicago blackhawks being an interesting fit because the blackhawks they want to move forward and, and improve quickly now before patrick kane is out of good years so do you arrange a deal that gets you Adam Bokvist and a first round pick or a deal that gets you Kirby Dak involved, or do you go to the Philadelphia Flyers, a team that really needs a right shot defenseman to play in the top pair because it's not, that team has not been the same without Matt Niskan. Do you ask for Travis Konechny who at times was a, was healthy scratch this year, right? Do you go, do you look for Nolan Patrick and try and buy low? Do you look for Konechny and Nolan Patrick for Seth Jones, something like that where you're still bringing in young assets, but not completely starting from scratch. So you're kind of reloading. 
and you might miss the playoffs next year, which is not such a bad thing because there are some exciting opportunities, but you're not completely starting at square one. So maybe that's the happy medium for the Blue Jackets. So we know Ryan Reeves of the Vegas Golden Knights suspended for two games for that skirmish in which you need Ryan Graves in the head uh, in game one of the Vegas Colorado series. And we know Avalanche captain Gabriel Landeskog said that he thinks Ryan Reeves is just sort of on a mission to hurt people. So where do you guys stand on this? Do you think that Ryan Reeves is sort of in that Tom Wilson category where he's just a menace out there? Do you think he was sort of just caught in the moment and just in general, where do you stand on Ryan Reeves? We'll start with the other Ryan, Ryan Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is a difficult question for me because NHL players, you know, they say they never want to hurt a guy. We hear, you know, we hear that every time somebody hurts somebody, it's like, oh, you know, that's not the kind of player I am. I'm, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody out there. But when you look at what they're doing, I mean, they clearly are. You know, anytime you're you're catching a guy uh, with his head down or you know getting into a fight, like you are trying to hurt the guy. It's just again, the sports psychology is is such a weird thing. Um, you know, is Ryan Reeves trying to hurt guys? Well, yeah, that's his job. Um, you know, he was mad at Ryan, Ryan Graves and he wanted retribution and and that's what he did. And, you know, he went over the line and that's why he suspended. Probably could have been a longer suspension. Um, but it, it was, I mean, it was a very weird, uh, action that he took. It was very hard to even figure out what had happened initially because there was so many bodies. Um, but it's, it's just kind of a weird line that it gets crossed. Um, but, you, I mean, you can't say that hockey players aren't trying to hurt each other because that's the, you know, that's, that's the easiest way to, to get an opponent out of the way is to make sure that they can't play at full strength. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will say like, oh, you know, you just want to have them hearing footsteps and, and that'll make them make plays quicker. Um, but it, it's hard for me to to watch the game and, and not acknowledge that violence is a a major part of it uh, because you have, you have all the tools and the speed at your disposal. So, you know, is, is Ryan Reeves alone in this? Definitely not, but he is one of the strongest, toughest players in the league. So, you know, in terms of that department, that intimidating department, that physicality, he's at an advantage because so few guys can hang with him. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and disagree a little bit with that. Um, I don't think this is complex. I don't think it's nuanced. I think Ryan Reeves is out there to hurt people. I think he went through the whole Minnesota Vegas series in the first round trying to hurt people. He pushed Ryan Suter's face into the goalpost. And you know what, guys? I think actually, in my, in, in my opinion, he is more of a menace than Tom Wilson. Because I, I think Tom Wilson, with Tom Wilson, I think – you know, for, for him, you know, it's, it's a matter of recklessness. He just loses his mind and, and loses all perspective and, and then ends up doing things that are really, really regretful and really, really stupid and really, really dangerous. But I, I don't, I don't know that Tom Wilson goes out there and, and with the intent to hurt people, I think Ryan Reeves, it's a, it's, 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 it's a deliberate thing. He goes out there thinking I am going to hurt someone. You know, like, like, and I think there's a big difference. I, I think, you know, in terms of the strength and, 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 and the, um, you know, the end result, you know, Tom Wilson is, is a huge menace. 
Um, but it's because he just can't help himself. I think that I think that Ryan Reeves is a huge menace because he intends on being a menace. Like he wants to be the guy that everybody is afraid of. And, you know, I, I just, it just, I don't know. I've, I, I tweet, I end up tweeting this out probably once every couple of weeks after this guy does something like this, but it's like, you know, the league needs guys like Ryan Reeves to protect players from guys like Ryan Reeves. You know, I, I mean, I mean, I'm so tired of this bull crap that I hear that, you know, these guys like Ryan Reeves are out there to keep the peace and to keep the temperature down and to, and to, uh, you know, to make sure everybody's honest out there and everything like that. Meanwhile, it's, it's the majority of times it's these guys that are causing this garbage to happen. And, and Ryan Reeves is the worst offender for it, you know, and, and you know what? The worst thing is, is the NHL wants the game played this way. They have no problem with the game playing, being played this way. I will, I would like to remind you that there was a time, was it four years ago? Ryan Reeves was, Ryan Reeves was traded for a first round pick, a first round draft pick. Okay. So thanks for attending my TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, well said, Kenny. And I do think uh, I think that the the difference between Reeves and Wilson is really important uh, for the discussion because Tom Wilson's a first liner, right? So I think the frustration with Tom Wilson is sort of like there are a lot of other things he can do to help his team win a hockey game. Whereas with Ryan Reeves, it's more like what he represents is the problem because he's sort of a professional hurtier. That's what he does. He's not a, he scored one goal this season. He's out there to just cause pain to the other team, especially if you think of the context around Ryan Graves hit Matisse Yanmark in that game. And that was sort of the retaliation. So when it's a retaliation, sometimes it's worse because the retaliation is always deliberate, whereas sometimes the initial hit that hurts the guy that inspires the retaliation is accidental. Whereas Reeves is out there for retribution. Like that's deliberate violence, right? So, uh, and I do think, you know, Reeves is a repeat offender. He was suspended in the playoffs last year as well. So I, I think it sort of comes down to the bigger existential question of just, you know, Ryan Reeves is who he is. It's a, it's a type of player that you can have in the league and it's less about him being a bad guy and just this being a type of job you can get in the NHL, being a guy who goes and hurts people to avenge different, you know, cheap shots or hits or perceived cheap shots or hits. And whether we still want that in the game, I I don't personally want it in the game. I, I still think it's on the way out, but it's not completely gone, which is to me disappointing. Uh, we'll do a couple of listener questions. First one is from Eric Richmond. Eric Richmond wants to know, we've seen it many times, players that dominate the regular season falter in the playoffs. Does the game change that much or does the player fail to meet higher expectations? I personally think the game really does change that much. It's called completely differently. And that's why you see different players succeed in the playoffs in the regular season. And, you know, we've talked about Mitch Marner, but if you look at, you know, who are two of the players that have benefited the most in recent seasons from the slashing crackdown, whose numbers exploded shortly thereafter, it was Mitch Marner and Johnny Gaudreau. Who are two of the biggest Houdinis in the league that are known for disappearing in the playoffs? Mitch Marner and Johnny Gaudreau. And I don't think it's coincidence. I'm not trying to say it's not their fault, but I'm saying the game is different and it does pass guys like that by more so in the playoffs. They are affected by it because they just have less space out there to do their thing and play their sort of East-West game. So I I think that absolutely is a factor. What do you think, Mr. Campbell? Well, Connor McDavid has played 21 playoff games in the course of his career. He's played over five, he's, he's logged over 500 minutes of ice time in those games. He's drawn six penalties in the playoffs, six 
penalties in the playoffs. In the last two years, he hasn't drawn a single one. Didn't draw a single penalty against the Winnipeg Jets. Did not draw a single penalty against the Chicago Blackhawks in the bubble last year. Um, despite the fact that he always has the puck when he's out there. So, yes, absolutely. The game changes completely. I, I, I mean, that's a given. That's, that's just a, a big no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. Everybody knows it. Everybody says it. Everybody realizes it. And unless you're, you're prepared to adapt your game to, uh, to that style of play, you're going to have a tough time. You know, Sidney Crosby had to do it. And, you know, a lot of guys have had to do it. And, you know, I mean, I, 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 I unfortunately missed the first segment of, of the, the Leaf meltdown, but I, I think there was a, a, a real sort of belief on the Leafs part. And, you know, Kyle Dubas maybe being a bit naive and young and, and, and that, that the game was going to be called a certain way in the playoffs. And it's not. And it's just not. And what happened? It wasn't. And those guys got neutralized in, in, in legal ways, but in many, many, many illegal ways as well. I mean, it's, it's just a known fact, you know, in the NFL, an interference call in week one of a blowout loss is the same interference call you're going to see in the last minute of a tie game in the Super Bowl. You know, I mean, for all that people rag on international hockey, a penalty is a penalty is a penalty. A penalty in the first game of the of the preliminary round of the tournament is the same penalty that's going to be called in the gold medal game. And that just does not happen in the NHL. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I mean, we've had this conversation before where referees say they don't want to decide the game, but they are deciding the game by not calling penalties because I mean, if I was in the NHL, I I know that I can get away with murder in the playoffs. I know I can blatantly interfere with skill players and not get called uh, unless the other team took a penalty. And then I know my team's going to get one penalty. So it's evened up. I mean, game management has been one of the big storylines of this season, but it hasn't really changed. And I mean, that's something that's structural and some teams know it. Uh, I think the Boston Bruins are brilliant when it comes to knowing how games are going to be called and how they should play and how they should tailor their game to have success and they've reaped the rewards for it. I think a lot of teams have figured it out just as much as everybody knows that the Leafs are going to make a drop pass every time they try to go through the neutral zone. Um, so you do have to sort of tailor your game to the playoffs and recognize that it's not going to be the same back and forth as you're used to, unless you have big heavy guys that are just going to push right through it, uh, such as the Vegas and, you know, yeah, I thought we saw that, um, you know, at the end of that Minnesota series is Vegas just kind of pushed through. Um, and that's why Colorado's being successful, because you can't interfere with Nathan McKinnon. He's a meteor. He's just going to go right past you or right through you. Mm -hmm. Same with Landis Cog, same with Mika Rantanen. Yeah. We'll do uh, one more question before the rapid fire game. This one is from Scott Baker. Scott wants to know if you are Ron Francis, which of the many bad contracts are you most willing or eager to take on at the expansion draft? I'm going to say PK Subban uh, because for one, you know, he could, I think he still has enough in him that if he could be given a bigger role and depending on the talent surrounding him, 
power play time. He could still have a resurgent season, but also just for a new franchise, a really media friendly face, someone you can sort of really sell as one of the faces of the team, one of the leaders of the team, I think would really be great for getting people interested in hockey in Seattle. And he's also a pending unrestricted free agent next year. So that's a flippable guy you can move at the trade deadline. So I think he checks several different boxes. Who do you have, Ryan? Yeah, Subban is definitely a good one. Answer me, why would Rod Francis take a bad contract? But I'm going under the assumption that you're going to get a first round pick along with that bad contract. Um, I, you know what? I, I would look at Ryan Johansson um, because he's got four years left on the deal, eight million, which is it's not chump change. It's a lot, but you're an expansion team, so you're in a great cap position already. You know, I mean, he can be a second line center, you know, on an expansion team, maybe he, he is a first line center. He's got some Pacific Northwest roots, you know, played for the Portland Winterhawks in the WHL. So he's at least familiar with that general geographic area. Um, it's only four years. It's not the end of the world. Um, if he completely, you know, craters. Uh, but in general, I would not take contracts because I do not have to. Yeah, I'm going to go with my favorite hobby horse and go with the Sergei Bobrovsky contract because I think Florida is absolutely desperate to get rid of that deal. Absolutely desperate, and they will do anything. Mm. Like, I, I could see, like, you know, like, okay, you get Owen Tippett in a first-round pick for, for, for taking Bobrovsky. And, and I think something, like, it's interesting because, you know, Vegas did it a certain way, right? They, they went out and they, they built their team and it's obviously been hugely su- successful, made the final the first year, you know, since then haven't gotten out of the second round and, and may not get out of the second round this year. So for everything that they've done, for all of that they've built there, they still haven't achieved, you know, sort of ultimate success. You know, I, I've been thinking about this for a little while. Like what if, what if Seattle just does it the, the traditional way, you know, and bottoms out because you guys just talked about the next two drafts and who could be available, Mm. you know? I mean, so for me, um, maybe they, maybe that's the the route they take. I mean, Seattle has got, you know, they've got the, they're going to have a honeymoon period, right? Like Vegas would have had one too. They're going to have a honeymoon period. People aren't, you know, going to be expecting, well, I guess they are going to be expecting big things based on the Vegas template, but you know, maybe that was a one-off and maybe, maybe the other way to do it is to, is to go the, go the, the, the sort of the traditional way and just build that way. And so that this would be a great way to do that, I think, because you've got yourself another first round pick, you've got a good young player and you've got a goalie who can't stop the puck. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I like the theory. Interesting. Thank you for all the questions, everyone. Sorry, we couldn't get to every single question, but we came close and I will fulfill the promise to answer the the other ones next week thank you for watching and listening we'll be back thank you for listening to the hockey news podcast make sure to check out thn.com slash subscribe to get issues of the hockey news magazine delivered right to your mailbox